out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is The C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of Mambo Taxi, because very recently I spoke to Lini Metz to find out more about life, love, poetry, everything else in between. Um, so this is the interview. Or conversation, really. Um, yeah, so after several minutes of casual chat about probably the usual things that we speak about in 2020, we got down to that very exciting subject that was the early formative years of the band. Anyway, that was it, really. Um, Lini, it's all over to you. Well, I guess when I was growing up, because I'm originally from Belgium. Right. Uh, so I, I grew up in Belgium. Now, my mother had very, very eclectic taste. So at home, we we listened to a lot of different music, like, you know, uh, but mainly the Beatles, I guess. Right. In, when I was sort of uh, a little child, you know, I was born in 69. It was very Beatles. But, you know, she also plays Turkish music, Greek music. You know, we had the uh, Flemish chanson. We had the Jacques Brel. We had the Serge Gainsbourg. So, I mean, I come from an extremely, extremely eclectic uh, uh, background music-wise, and I, I still sort of, it's still really important to me to um, to listen to as much different music as possible, like, um, and not to get pigeonholed into one, yes. one kind of thing. Um, so that definitely have I got left over from that, you know, and I, I do remember she put on this record one day and it was, I think it was Slayer. (laughs) (laughs) Or I think it was, I I don't know. Um, And I remember thinking, whoa, what's that? You know, (laughs) know, I like, like this. But then I went more into the punk thing. Like I didn't really like the heavy metal that much. I I do remember listening to the Dead Kennedys for the first time thinking, wow, I love, (laughs) I love this stuff, you know. Yeah. So, so it was kind of probably the mid '80s when you started to have that kind of musical moment where things changed. Yeah. Because I suppose when I was quite young, I suppose I would listen to my parents didn't have a record player because I think being of that kind of working class generation, I think when they got together, as in, you know, no one had much money, so I think you had to sell everything, you know, just literally everything, get a little house together and just kind of work day and night, have children. Wow. And then in the 70s, they got a record player and there was a few records. There was my older brother. He had, you know, he started bringing in these prog, slightly prog rock records that was very fascinating. You know, he did also have, thankfully, Sergeant Pepper and Goodbye yes. Yellow Brick Road. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. This was like 74 time and felt quite mesmerized by it but you know culturally there was nothing about you know sergeant pepper at that stage but he also liked definitely sergeant pepper was one of my uh, the records in my um mother's collection that was definitely like that kind of floored me a little bit yeah yes and i I mean and i must have been about four or five at the time so yeah no 69 so yeah so I was very young when I when I when I did think wow that record is pretty cool yeah um, and there was a lot of kind of quite nursery rhyme type of tracks on it like lovely Rita 
and exactly, um, yeah. for the benefit of Mr. Kite. But it was Good Morning. It was a track on site too called Good Morning that I thought was absolutely amazing. I just loved the, the lyrical content. But also because my mum would listen to radio too. This is in the 60s, I suppose. It was that kind of Burt Backrack, and then it was a bit like the Carpenters and all that kind of stuff, which I loved. I still love mm. Burt Backrack. So, um, and the carpenters. So there you go. So then in the 80s, so, so punk, probably you were quite young when, yeah, I miss punk as well, actually. Um, so well, I, was, I did miss the first punk. I mean, I, it took, I wasn't, yeah, the, I wasn't really into kind of sex pistols and all that kind of, to what to me seemed like sort of, you know, um, sort of the, the visualization of punk, you know, everyone with their, with the, with the, with you know the Mohicans and stuff like that because actually when I got into punk you know I got really into crass you know I was you know we were all I'm from Antwerp and it was very very political and it was really very important for me uh, the political side of thing and so crass was like you know something that completely I got yeah. so into um, and um and then that kind of evolved into hardcore, you know, towards the late 80s, like, yeah. um, or mid, because a lot of the American hardcore bands uh, used to come to Belgium and play, like, you know, and so I saw all the uh, suicidal tendencies, MDC, um, you know, because there was a venue in Eindhoven where they all came to and uh, we would sneak out across the border to the Netherlands and go to all these uh, gigs and then you know all of us because in Belgium it was like illegal to smoke dope and if you went to the Netherlands you could smoke dope so <laughs> then we were always smoking dope and go to the punk gigs so yes. yeah that was so that were was bands like the X important to you who are based oh yes massively <laughs> so yes massively yeah of course I mean a lot of the Dutch punk you know we were into but yeah the X was huge for us I mean I was actually playing one of their tracks the other day, um, you know, just like, and it still really resonates with me, you know. Um, yeah, that history is what's happening and the tumult, um, those albums, yeah, massive for me. Maybe. Yes, it's it's quite an interesting one. So, so when, as we trundled into the 80s, because I've put sort of, you know, okay, I sort of put things into little categories because it keeps me amused. But yeah, there was like from between 83 to 87 was a real kind of indie pop sort of sound. It was also the years of the Smiths as well. So that kind of works mm. really well, doesn't it? And you had all those bands like the June Brides and the Go-Betweens and the Triffids. And, you know, there was mm. definitely a bit of, you know, the Wolfhounds and Yeah, Yeah, No. And then sort of the Smiths break up, ecstasy appears, you know, and then suddenly it's like, oh, let's, let's, you know, start dancing to stuff as well. Because actually I really loved Huskadoo. They were my favourite band, actually, in the mm. Buttholes and then Sonic Youth. So it was a bit, but Huskadoo were just like, oh my God. They were so yeah, stunning. no, I love Huskadoo, of course. Black Flag. Black I mean, Flag. I saw Black Flag last year and I, they were, I mean, everyone was like, well, Henry Rollins is not in it. Oh my God, you know, and, but I thought the gig was amazing. It was like... I pogoed for three hours solid. <laughs> it was brilliant. I really had a good time. Yeah, and it was really good gig. Really I good bet, gig. I bet your hamstrings hurt the next day. I had a massive bruise in my sternum. Like it was so big. Someone elbowed me in the chest and I was like, oh. But the next morning I woke up and I felt so relaxed. I was like, whoa, why do I feel so relaxed? And it's, oh yeah, I pogoed for three hours. <laughs> so it was really good uh, therapy. Yes. So then how did you, um, 
So you're in Belgium. So then, so the, so then, you know, okay, this is very exciting, isn't it? So we had the ecstasy world and the stone roses and primal scream and the soup dragons and happy Mondays. And then, you know, there was bleach and, you know, Nirvana and the sonic youth, not sonic youth, the Seattle sound came along. But then at the same time, there was all that North London scene of my bloody Valentine and silverfish and the faith haters and lots of people squatting. So where did you, and shoegazing, we loved all that. So where did you, when did you sort of come over to England? Well, I, I, I kind of slot into the whole uh, uh, North London squat um, scenario because I was playing in a band in Belgium, uh, a, a sort of oi band actually. It was two skinheads, me and a black guy on guitar. Wow. We were like redskins. And, um, and we did a tour in Germany with a band called the Blaggers. And um, so then I sort of got to, uh, one of the Blaggers was like, oh, why don't you come and visit me in London? Like, and, um, so I went to visit him and he lived with three girls that ended up being Mamba Taxi. Right. And um, so then they said, oh, do you want to join our band? And um, so then I moved into that squat and then I ended up being in Mamba Taxi. There you go. That was that was it. And uh, so and then, of course, you know, being part of all that Clawfist, Too Pure, Ouija, you know, you know, yes. we went on tour, all on tour with Huggy Bear, Faith Healers. Yeah, that was a massive you know, Stereo Lab. I think one of the highlights of that period for me was like, you know, supporting Stereo Lab at the, the Scala Cinema. You know, yeah, which was like a really cool show, and it was just a great time. Because I mean, I I just came to London, you know, with my guitar on my back. I didn't even think about what what what's going to happen, or I just literally arrived here, and I was like in a band. <laughs> Within a month, you know, I was like doing records and playing loads of shows, and it was just so much fun meeting everybody and just having a brilliant time everyone was living in squats and and we were just all just having a brilliant time you know it was yes. just a really amazing time to be in London and did you ever of sort of ho hover towards the it's called the ambulance station did you ever go into that sort of venue there was another squat um place that in is that late... Tufnell Park or something possibly yes yeah it I think so I'm, I'm not sure I'm, I'm sure I must have sort of come across it I mean, I kind of, because I was very much of the gigs, gigs, I just went to gigs, gigs. I never sort of did a lot of squat parties because for me, it was just all about going to the gigs and any gigs I would go to, right. I could go to, I would go to, yeah. So that's what, that was my thing. Yes. Um, and, we, and Ouija Records. I can't remember who sort of ran it. Was it a guy called Gary? Gary Ouija. Gary Ouija. Gary Walker. There you go. We we used to call him Gary Weijer. <laughs> I, I think he came from Norwich because I think he he seemed to have some connection with the Jackard, or he knew the Jackard in Norwich, but then was very good friends with the members of Silverfish, and Leslie and Fuzz yes. and Stuart and Chris from Silverfish. Mm. So I guess that sound at the time and my bloody Valentine, you know, it was it was a bit of a scene, wasn't it? Oh, it was an amazing. Um, I feel really lucky that I kind of fell into it because it was such a complete fluke. You know, I just. It was just like being on tour with the Blaggers and then he, you know, Jason, the drummer, happened to live with, you know, the girls that I ended up being in a band with. So, and then I, I didn't, I didn't struggle to find friends or stuff to do. So yeah, it was brilliant. I mean, I, I look back on it and I think, wow, how fluky, because I know a lot of people who moved to London from 
Belgium or whatever. And they had a really hard time because London can be a, a hard place to move to if you're if you're on your own and you're trying to do something. And, you know, it's hard to, to meet people sometimes, you know. Yeah. So well, I feel very lucky that that I just ended up and I, you know, I squatted for years and just bummed around basically having a brilliant time. Well, also, I mean, I know everything gets a bit sort of rose-tinted sunglasses, but there, there is in reality just there was a lot of really amazing music and there was a lot of venues yeah. at that stage. And the one thing that I've Absolutely. noticed from doing this show is that there were these kind of gatekeepers, weren't there? You know, you had John Peel, which was quite a big thing. Then you had the music papers. And then, you, and then like every city in town and obviously London had lots of venues that you could just kind of go around the country and get a gig. So it was... Oh, yeah. Very, you know, there was you yeah, didn't absolutely. get and you didn't get stuck I, in one little scene. No, no, and it, yeah, it was great. You know, going, going, I did obviously went on tour in the UK uh, quite a few times. I, I, I did a peel session as well, which, um, you know, which you know, it's just. I mean, I was thinking because recently, I mean, because I'm not the kind of person to look back. Like, I sort of don't look back, and I don't really care too much about like, oh, you know, where do I have a cassette of this or. And but recently I've been sort of thinking, maybe I should sort of see if I find all these things. Like, do I have a copy of that Peel session? Because I haven't even, haven't even heard it, you know, like since God knows when. Yes, well, absolutely. Yeah. And did it take a while for you to get your sound together? I mean, because sometimes it takes a bit of a time and some bands go, no, we got it straight away. Did it sort of, you know? Well, I mean, we were all girls. We were very ramshackle. I, mean, I wouldn't say that we were amazing musicians or anything and it was more about the spirit of the time and the and also the just to kind of see me because I remember when I was when I was in Belgium and I was sort of perhaps you know 15 16 I was desperate to be in a band I really wanted to be in a band and and I kept saying I want to be in a band and and everyone was like but you can't be in a band because you're a girl and uh and then ending up in London and being in an all-girl band you know was just like just amazing you know and I guess we got lumped in with the ride girl thing which we kind of all always sort of railed against but you know we just we did definitely have our own sound just by the fact that uh, we were just like a collection of sort of slightly misfit misfits and sort of cobbled together musicianship I guess (laughs) (laughs) but it worked you know it it worked and I I think we did some great songs and, and some of them were very political I mean I really like um you know some of the songs that we did I think yeah I can listen to them and think yeah I like that song you know but you know it was all like fuzz guitar uh raw bass and and harmony vocals and nice harmonies and there we go I didn't really think about it too much you know it was just for me because for me I just enjoyed playing you know and I liked going on tour and gigging and that's what it was about for me you know I didn't yeah, I like making records and stuff, but I didn't want to think too much about, oh, what's that sound? And maybe I should have, but... <laughs> did did <laughs> you, because sh- did the, the bass come quite easily? Did you sort of pick it up and feel, oh, yes, this is this is something... Well, that- I mean, I would, I would firstly think of myself as a songwriter, because I always wrote songs, like even when I was from eight or whatever, eight, nine, I, I started writing songs. I never really, because even though I came from a family where music was quite important, but um, no like music sort of thing. So I had to kind of teach myself and, but I always sort of instinctively sort of uh, 
wanting to wanted to write songs and when I when I came to London you know somebody said oh your songs are quite good and I hadn't even occurred to me you know that they could be good it, it was not that important to me I for me it was like I like doing this so um yeah but yeah so but obviously when you're in a band with other people you bounce off them and and they give you feedback and so that's how it works so um yeah so I picked up the bass uh, because I was the lead singer so you know that to me I was like well that's the easiest instrument to to play although it probably isn't actually I should have I should have picked up the guitar but yeah to me because it was ridiculous because the whole thing was so big for me as well but I ended <laughs> up being the Susie Quattro do you know <laughs> I know this is true we we all remember this <laughs> of a certain age we remember all remember Susie Quad because quite a few people have said actually singing and playing the bass is quite a difficult one it to is, pull off. It is hard but I did it <laughs> you know <laughs> but uh, one of my heroes obviously as well was Kim Deal so you know right. I had to live up to that one. Um, of course you had Kim Deal. was so cool. Because you had in so cool. you had the red guitars you had a woman called Lou Barlow I do believe she was a bass player and then you had Kim Deal Kim Gordon from Sonic Youth and obviously Susie Quattro but my one of my heroes was always Lemmy from Motorhead so you know that of must course, have felt yeah well people actually nicknamed me Flemmy the Flemish Lemmy <laughs> <laughs> you know from Flanders so yeah yeah so absolutely you must have laughed at that joke so many times yeah <laughs> once but yes yeah, but did it you know as somebody who's never played an instrument then does it all sort of come together relatively well if you have the determination I mean that sounds a bit silly I know but you know it does seem like well you you know when you listen to the records you think well that's that's all put together beautifully but at the same time as somebody who's never played in a band and played an instrument that always seems like that's quite a jump to make something that sounds so you know 20 years or 30 years later still sounds good well, yeah, I mean, of course, I, I didn't come come here, and uh, I I did play in bands, and and I did um, uh, you know sit in my room quite a lot copying records as a lot of people do, and I I had some form of aptitude towards it, and then and then like I said, it's all about the collaboration. It is it is about the collaboration, and but because I I was main vocalist in 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 most of the bands that I play with, so for me that focus was was on the vocals and uh, writing the songs um I didn't think too much about I mean I just I just played the bass with it and it just seemed to work <laughs> it came so, together. yeah, yeah yes. it came together yeah there you go because I know yeah. in in Liverpool there was a club called Eric's and there was a particular band called Big in Japan featuring various members who went on to Frankie Goes to Hollywood and the Lightning Seeds and I think Julian Cope and Bill Drummond but there was another person called Jane Casey and she said you know, we were all kind of misfits and we all sort of wore our neurosis on stage. Did you sort of have a similar kind of that pent up kind of energy and anger and sort of, um, yes. Yeah, stuff? yeah. I mean, and like I said, the politics for me was important as well. And I remember somebody, somebody reminded me one day, I said, oh, yeah, I saw your band play in Chelmsford and, and you, you look so cool on stage because you, you went, oh, you know, because I talked to, I was talking about my period, like I've had my period, it's late. And then apparently I was bashing my, my guitar against my stomach, like going, you know, maybe I'll have an abortion on stage or something like that, you know, but I know that sounds quite crass. And when that person told me that I did that, which I don't remember, I, I, um, I thought, wow, you know, but then I thought, 
you know, this is political as well. This is about being political and being a woman on stage, you know, which was important to me. Yes. It was important because at the time there was, you know, and there still is, you know, um, uh, some inequalities in that field. And so for me, the politics was definitely important in that. And just to be a woman on stage and, you know, the music industry in the early 90s was very, very, still very male dominated. It probably still is. I, I don't really know. But, you know, you had to like, you had to be like strong and, and um, you know, don't take any shit, you know. And, and you you had to take shit sometimes like being a, they would be sometimes condescending to you and say things like, where is the guy where is the guy? And you're like, there's no guy. It's us. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> yes, that must have felt very irritating. How did you get on with your John Peel session? Did you know? Did um, who was your producer on that? Was it the famous Dale Griffith? I don't know. I mean, I I the only I do remember I was in Abbey Road Studios. We were with a an engineer. I mean, it's just one of those experiences where you show up. And they've got everything ready. You don't have to do everything. And you just, they go, hey, just play. And you play and it sounds freaking amazing. And you only do want to do two takes and then you shove that at the door. I, because they're so, they're so good at what they do. They can just make you sound amazing immediately. So yes, I don't remember. It. I don't remember. I guess maybe I could look it up. But yeah, I no, I was just curious if you had a good experience with your John Peel session. Because I mean, it was in 1995. Yeah, it was a brilliant experience. It, it was in Made of Ale Studios. Yes. Like I said, it was just, but it's very quick. They turn it around in like three hours. You're in and out there. Because I thought I'm going to be in the peel session all day and you're like <laughs> shoved out the door after three hours yeah you're done now <laughs> brilliant brilliant God, if, if only the dentist was that easy but i know so your first single prom girl women uh, queen did that um Rob did that queen. did that come together quick was that quite an uh, um yes because that was the well, first we'd single. been rehearsing a We'd been rehearsing for quite a while and um, at the time uh, in Mambo Taxi, so we had a, a, sing, a drummer who sang, Angeline, she wrote her songs and everybody had a go at writing songs. So um, Prom Queen was the first um, A-side and then I had a, uh, on the other side, it was one of my songs. And uh, um, so, you know, that's just the decision we made at the time to do it like that. And Prom Queen was very shouty and, and very out there and also you know kind of a feminist statement saying like we don't want to be prom queens yes um so you know um that's how it happened and i remember we we recorded it in a studio in wapping and um wapping at the time was still like a complete no man's land kind of just as like a load of warehouses with with you know no no one lived there and it was just quite a spooky place and there was a studio called elephant studios and we went there and um, recorded it and um, yeah, just yes. all. And who are Clawfist? Because I've never come across Clawfist, God, I shouldn't admit. Haven't that. you? No. Well, Clawfist, so we, 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 it was a label set up by Nick Brown, who who was at the time also working in in the uh, the um, record store in um, in um, uh, Notting Hill, Portobello. Right. Can't remember that shop now. Oh my God, what was it? Oh, Vinyl Solution. Vinyl, yeah. Well, Vinyl Solution was in that same building, but he didn't have anything. He didn't have anything to do with Vinyl Solution. I think. I mean, they were sort of part of a group right. of people who who were in the same building. 
I'm not sure, like Nick was running Intoxica or even owning it. I don't remember, but he set up a label. And I think Delia was friends with Nick anyway, but we that was our third gig or something. And we played at Euston Rails, which was a venue in in the station in Euston. Yes. And um and uh, you know, he was like, Hey girls, I I want to put out your record. And we were like, Yay! <laughs> you know. <laughs> and that was like our third gig we did. So it was brilliant. Yeah. So then we were on Clawfist then. I think Fun. I don't know if Gallon Gallon Drunk was already on it, but we were on the same label as Gallon Drunk. Yes. And, um, Stereo yeah. Lab as well, I do believe. No, Stereo Lab were on Too Pure. That's true. So were yeah. yeah, the, the Faith Healers. Uh, Faith Healers you, were on Too Pure. And what about how come you weren't on Ouija Records? Because Silverfish started on them. Did you just never get that offer? Well, I mean, I suppose Nick was the the guy that offered us a deal. We just went, yeah, we'll take that. I mean. And it's just what happened. I mean, I didn't really think, oh, I want to be on Ouija. I just, um, I think Anjali, uh, who was the original drummer in Mamba Taxi, she left Mamba Taxi because we went on with a different drummer after. And she signed to Ouija um, after uh, and did a band called Voodoo Queens. Yes, um, blimey. So, yeah. So much going on. And how was the dynamic with the band? With the, you know, was the dynamic very exciting at that stage? You know, because you, you then followed well, I mean, up with the second single, Poems on, on the Underground. Yeah, I think, you know, I mean, obviously we had some like musical differences and I think Anjali very much wanted to uh, uh, come from behind the drum kit and be the front person, which, you know, and, it, and there was some friction at the time um, uh, around that. But ultimately, I can't blame her for wanting to be, you know, she was definitely a front woman, you know, and she didn't want to stay behind the drum kit. So she formed her own band and that was fair enough. Um, so then we did Pones on the Underground, which is one of the songs that I wrote. So, you know, um, and yeah, we recorded that without her and moved on as a band without her. So, um, so that was that really. Yes. Um, because interestingly, having mentioned dear old Lemmy, and I know he did one, um, I can't remember what the album, it might be 1918, but he did a song which was quite a ballad almost, like Don't Let Daddy Touch You or something, um, which was all about, you know, child abuse. You did one which was obviously very similar called Velvet Youth as well, didn't you? Yes, I did, yeah. That yes. must have, that must, was that a difficult one to write, record and... You yeah know. it was I mean and uh, because it is a personal experience so and uh uh it's something that's very uncomfortable and I and I did do it and, and and in fact just to be reminded about that um but it was really important to me to do it and I do remember um being invited to do like a a, a session a Mark Radcliffe session so we drove to Manchester one very very hot day and uh, we did like four songs. I think Velvet Youth was one of them. And I do remember, because we did it live, you know, uh, it was done, it was going out live. And I do remember um, the kind of mood in the studio going quite sort of, you know, I think Mark Radcliffe, he didn't really know how to kind of, oh, okay, you know, how to react to it almost, because it's quite a quite a heavy subject. But um, yeah. Um, but you know, I'm really proud that I wrote a song about it. It's not, it's not an easy thing, and um, and I and I feel very grateful that the girls supported me in that as well. Because you know, some people might have gone, "Oh, that's just too heavy," or we can't, 
we can't do a song about that you know so yeah yes um, really grateful that um, that they supported that yeah, yeah. Definitely. well it was quite you know i mean i suppose in a very slightly so yeah i suppose susan vega done luca but that had almost become kind of <clears throat> i don't know it was still quite heavy but you know some but the the, the that yeah, that's also about child abuse, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I know when when I heard Lemmy's track, you know, "Don't Let Daddy Touch You" or something, with some can't quite remember the exact title. It was, it was like, shit, that's such a depressing song. Yeah, but, it's a, it's, I I I I I don't like to sh shy away from um, heavy subjects, and I think you know things need to be said. I mean, I still if I still write songs now, and and I think you know, oh. You know, I'd always try and um, go deep, you know, <laughs> get out there and get out there like what really is the sore point, you know. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's important to me. Yes. Yeah. And also, I mean, and, and sort of another, the other, you know, the song that, you know, single that followed that, Do You Always Dress Like That in Front of Other People's Boyfriends? What's the sort of, the sort of uh, narrative behind that? Well, that was kind of like just a fun thing really but I do remember I was in a charity shop and I was trying on clothes and and the thing is I'm a little bit sort of I guess for me it was a little bit like taking the mick out of kind of because English people at the time or my experience because I'm from Belgium and we're a little bit more open and and I was just having fun with sort of the English sort of a little bit prudishness but I, I was in this charity shop and I was sort of trying on clothes and and I just thought, oh, I can't be bothered to stay in the dressing room. So I was just putting on, taking off my clothes and putting them on, you know, not being very <laughs> modest. And this woman turned around to me and said, do you always dress like that in front of other people's boyfriends? She actually said that. <laughs> oh, excellent. <laughs> she actually said that. Do you always dress like, and I thought, wow, <laughs> That's a cool line. I'll take that. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, that was great. And we did a really, really fun video yes. where everyone, loads of people from like uh, all the kind of the label and, and, and the guy and people around Mamba Taxi and, and sort of the Ouija crowd, we all like crammed ourselves into a video and dressed up and did like a really fun video. Yeah, it's still on YouTube somewhere, I think. <laughs> I, it, it, yes, well, actually, quite a lot of your videos on YouTube actually. Sort of, I've been watching them. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yeah, that's they're quite, quite something. Else. Well, yeah, yeah. And at the same time, there was you know, apart from the the Riot Girl um, sort of wave, there was also all the other bands that were happening, like Pop Relief itself and the Gay Bikers on Acid. So was was at at this stage because this was kind of that period where I suppose Britpop was about to sort of explode a bit later. But did you yeah. sort of have that sort of feeling that you were sort of part of a kind of a musical zeitgeist at all? Yeah, more like with the North London squatty thing. Because I, I, I mean, obviously on the periphery, well, for me on the periphery, we, I was aware of all those bands, gay bikers on acid and all that, but not too much, to be honest. Um, so... Yeah, I we I think we stayed in our little clique of like the three labels and hanging out and going on tour with Minxus and Huggy Bear and doing that because Huggy Bear they got really really massive at some point didn't they? So yes, really exploded and then um, I think though by because by the mid nineties 
think you know Mumbo Taxi kind of exploded and then I sort of ended up being in a band with the guy um, from the census thing so that was a completely different direction (laughs) (laughs) went more rock (laughs) god absolutely yeah so did you I mean at that stage you you know were you touring quite a lot out of the capital and around the country were you picking up quite a sort of audience of um did you suddenly get a a particular look when you looked out there at your you'll cry again wow these are yeah absolutely and and I'm still friends with some of the some of the fans from that day you know like oh like you do on social media but um you know um definitely and I I do remember because we were always quite caring and sort of because we used to get these really young fans you know coming to our gigs and then and they would just and then they would sort of miss their last train and then we'd be like telling them off and like oh my god you know how are you going to get home and we'd be like putting them in the van and like taking them home and stuff like that you know (laughs) telling them off and saying you know this is really bad next time you have to catch the train yeah and then they'd be like oh sorry you know and then but they'd be like really happy to be in the van of course with us getting driven home by mama taxi so probably sort of feeling very grown up so when you came to record the album this was quite a sort of, uh, it was quite close to when the band actually sort of also split up, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, did it was th- actually probably probably just before, yeah. Did you get a feeling that when you were sort of, had written the material and before writing it, that this was going to be, you know, like, this was it and then it was all over? You know, because some bands I spoke to said, yeah, there was a feeling that we weren't going to continue after the album came out. Did you have that sense of, of things? No, I think it was a fair, I think... I think I think the band in a way were kind of fed up with me because I sort of um uh was, was sort of a, a little bit unreliable and sort of always turning up at rehearsals late and I had by that point cuz I was sort of living at the time then with with Mark from the Sense of Things and and he he always supported me in Mamba Taxi but I think that I guess the sort of rot had set in and I think the girls actually just totally fed up with me and they turned around to me one day and actually threw me out of the band uh sort of went right we're we're doing a few gigs in Denmark and you're not coming and I was like what (laughs) you know really but I I honestly looking back on it you know I probably I I definitely deserved it and you know that was that but it wasn't like yeah it was just a thing that happened you know from one day to the next it wasn't just yes. kind of stopped and that's that that has been my experience with all bands that I've been in you know and I've been in and I've been in probably about 10 bands it's just it just stops it just <laughs> one day someone goes I'm fed up with this <laughs> I'm out you know and then everyone's like oh okay then all right that's the end of that then you know that's how it goes did you yeah, actually so. did you record the were you on the album yes yes most Good. definitely god thank um, god for that otherwise I'd <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I, I was definitely on the album, uh, and I did uh, wrote probably the bulk of the songs, uh, some other um, song done by Delia and uh, the drummer Karen, and also Andrea did so, uh, a song. But yeah, yes, I think the bulk were yours. Most, most of the songs. Yeah. Did you sort of feel? Because I've sort of seen a few of these documentaries with bands, and 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 sort of several things come up. Sometimes people say, "Oh God, we should have if we if only we'd had a good manager," which is probably easier said than done. And the other one, other person once mentioned, we really needed band therapy. It would have been so much better. Though again, when you're young, 
who knows if band therapy would have been very good. Did you sort of feel, did you ever get a manager? Um, no, it, with Mamba Taxi, we always self-managed. Um, I think, uh, yeah, just, you know, come to the point where your communication within, within, within the people uh, sort of runs because you don't really talk about what is going on and then you're young and you're you're it's just crazy I mean a lot of it was very crazy times as well I was like going out and just doing crazy stuff the whole time and it was like 100 miles an hour sort of life isn't it and and then at some point you know you know people just become fed up but they don't talk about it they just go I've had enough I'm out you know like I said before so yeah I don't know if things would have been different in under different circumstances, I probably would be, but you know, yes. you, it, hindsight, whatever. Um, it's easy said well, and done. Like I said, I've been in about 10 bands and all of them have ended the same way. <laughs> like one, one person going, oh, I'm done with this shit. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and that's it. <laughs> I know. Cause, cause I, sp- I remember doing one with fast Eddie from Motorhead and he said, you know, we drank like fish, we took loads of drugs and we used to fight yeah. a lot. But then, you know, we created that music, you know, we they, they, those first three albums, which were fantastic. Did you, Was it the same kind of youthful energy fueled by, you know, various substance and, and alcohol that sort of created the sound that, that was wonderful? But I think Mambo Taxi wasn't particularly druggy. I mean, and I mean, I liked a drink <laughs> and I'm sure other people, but it wasn't fueled by that I wouldn't say that no we were it wasn't fueled by those things it's hard to explain really um I think again part of it to be honest maybe why particularly Mama Taxi split up and maybe the way that I split I think could possibly have something to do with the fact that we were all women and and that it is a kind of difficult industry to to keep that going and to really go for it and to have that confidence just to keep going. I think it just ran out of steam really, you know? Yes. Um, yeah. And that's, that's what it was really. As, as, yeah. as a career path, music is probably one of the more tricky ones, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, I never made any money from it, but um, I, I don't have any regrets. <laughs> no, absolutely. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, you know, I, yeah, I'm, this poor right now and I, and I haven't really built up a career or anything but I, I had a brilliant time <laughs> it was very good so how did it finish did it just was it a moment or did you all no like I, like I said before so I think the girls got really the rest of the band got super pissed off with me I, I was unreliable and wasn't putting the work in and I I had a boyfriend and you know maybe I was not that interested and and they put in work and and maybe I, I I was a bit annoyed with some of the dynamics. Who knows? You know, that's that's just how it went. That's life. But then, you know, the senseless things. Mm. They did too much kissing, which was one of our sort of indie classics of all time. And then yeah. sort of formed another great band. song. Yes. Oh, yeah, because Mark at the time was my, my boyfriend. Um, sort of we met because Mamma Taxi actually supported Senseless Things on tour. I was one of, it was a brilliant tour. And you know, sense of things, they were really nice guys to go on tour with, very respectful to us ladies and very, you know, really, really, really nice 
guys to go on tour with, but I ended up sort of going out with Mark and then being in a relationship with him for about four years. And then um, after Mambo Taxi split up and the census things had split up by that point. So I ended up being in a band with him, um, um, which was a completely different direction. And of course he was slightly on a different level than Mambo Taxi because he had the experience of, you know, being on major label and, you know, uh, lots of contacts. And But we never actually got signed with, um, with uh, our bands. Um, I think our music didn't really, I think because we, we started when Britpop really took off, yes. uh, you know, that whole Oasis blur thing and a kind of our music didn't really fit what was going on at the time. And I think the, the labels were really, really looking for, you know, the next uh, Echo Belly Elastica. We just didn't fit into it because we were very, very more rock, you know, Kerrang, Kerrang loved us, but that was about it. <laughs> <laughs> everyone else thought we were, didn't think we were that much so but I again um it was a really good experience some of it um uh, it was tricky on other parts as well yes um, yeah but it was a really I mean we got a lot of studio time we did a lot of demos and I really liked that aspect of it just to be in, in the studio so so much like because we we were with a management company. We we were actually managed, and they owned a studio called Britannia Row, which is um, on Essex Road. And we could pretty much go in there whenever we wanted, and just do demo after demo after demo. We did so many demos, which was really good fun. Yes, and I'd like to know where those demos are. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I have no idea. <laughs> God, all that pre-production. Is it pre? Is that the same as pre-production? not sure uh god i never really did the terminology thing pre-production i think no it's when you're preparing for a right for a, no i think demos is just demos <laughs> just trying it out <laughs> yes no i just came across this recently someone was just saying about all the pre-production so that when when you're there and you've only got i think pre-production isn't that when you're putting on a show and you're preparing like oh well, what's the lights gonna do and what's the What's the sound going to do? And I think that's more to do with live shows, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah so someone so. was just talking about it. I think it was like when you you have so little money and you have so li sort of a limited time in the studio, you really have to make it count. So you have to have everything. Everyone has to know what they're doing exactly when. Yeah. Otherwise, you sort of you've lost your budget really. So then, have, is it then the case that you've you've kind of continued sort of writing and just being in different bands and combos, but you know it just never sort of coming out of you know like the, the kind of rehearsals yeah no no we did with jolt with jolt you mean no we did we did actually uh do records we had our own record label for a bit as well uh we went we played quite a lot of shows um we did an ep um uh, we recorded out on new sound um and um i think like I said, the sound was just a little bit not quite right for the time. And so none of the labels wanted to sound, uh, sign us. Because like I said, it was in the in the middle of Britpop and everyone just wanted to sign. And then the next, Sleeper, whatever. Really, wasn't it? it was going to be Sleep or Oasis. Yeah, exactly. Sleep or Echo, you know, or something like that. But we just didn't fit in. We didn't really fit in anywhere um, with our yes. sound. We were We were just too rock for rock. Sorry, we were too rock for the indie, but we were too indie for the rock. I think that's what it was. And then 
then we experimented with dub as well which kind of I'm sort of slightly questioning that move as well but but what can you do you make your decisions and you have to live with it so no, no. well um, I expect when David Bowie was making low everyone must have thought or obviously Brian Eno thought it, and Tony Visconti thought it was great but everyone else must have thought oh my god this is a disaster yeah no I mean exactly I mean if you're as an artist like you look you look at something like that where you know people do try different things and sometimes it works and sometimes it don't you know it's yeah. just what you've tried so you know we did try and like yeah we we never really got signed but we we did some really nice tour we went on tour with Rocket from the Crypt that was really oh good my fun. god fantastic um, yeah that was there you know and um you know we played some nice shows we went to Paris and and whatever with them I think uh but unfortunately then uh that kind of I think that was from probably about mid 90s till the end of the 90s that I was involved with Mark and then that kind of fell apart um for various reasons and then I kind of tried one more band after that that really we didn't really play that much but then I kind of had had enough of it to be honest I was like I'm done with this I don't want to be in another band I just because it's a slog you know always like rehearsing and playing and writing and and you know you don't really get a lot in return if 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 obviously if you get signed and you know you have a hit you know whatever I don't yeah that's amazing unfortunately I was never in a position to yes be in be in that be in that position um but um so it becomes a massive slow and you do live in London and you do have to like <laughs> eat so you kind of think okay I'm kind of done with this now like I want to just have a quiet life for a while <laughs> so yeah after yes. 10 years 15 years of playing in bands really so who sort of um I mean because I was trying to find some of the material and it's quite hard who owns the publishing I mean because do you do you sort of have the music I mean the sort of with which one the um Mambo joke Mambo Taxi yeah I think I'm not quite sure I just want <laughs> I think we signed a deal and god how was it how long was it for some what, 25 years I don't know who owns it I've in fact, recently um, we I've unearthed some some demos we did with the Mambo Taxi, which um, were never released, and uh, we recorded them in Chiswick Reach Studio, which is an all valve studio. So it was a very nice studio, and um, so we might put that up on Bandcamp actually. Yes, no, I just I just um, wondered because the one thing that people like doing, and especially during lockdown, where you think oh, I must go and sort out my stuff in the in the yeah. attic is kind of archiving material thinking actually I would quite like to have this kind of nicely archived as you do I know well that that's what I was saying before because I I'm I was always a bit like I don't care like I honestly I'm terrible at like hanging on to anything I haven't held on to anything from but I mean I'm presumed Delia's got um a lot of the stuff I mean she she like she she likes stuff and like she told me she has dats. I was given a, 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 um, a stick recently by Morgan, who's a bass player from Census Things, um, with a gig on it uh, that we did in Bristol. So I, I still has to have to watch that. But I'm just so scared to confront my 23-year-old 20, or 22-year-old self. I'm just a bit frightened <laughs> to look at it, you know? Like, oh my God, is that me? So I haven't, but I'm wait, waiting for 
and um, and have a sit together and look at it together, you know. But obviously yes. in these times, it's a bit difficult. Yeah, I'm yes. looking forward to that. Yes. Isn't and then the we'll case... put our debt all demo a band camp, band camp as well well that would be good that would be very good so is it the case that the members of the band are you still in communication with each other or have you just all gone your separate ways no i mean i mean i wouldn't say like um i mean nowadays i mean you see each other on social media don't you but you bump, um you, bump into you know each other uh way. no i have I have actually, because obviously Delia, Delia and Andrea, they ended up being in an outfit called the Nuns, um, uh, with um, a few other people that I I knew from way back, and you know I've gone to see them a few times, and I still see them socially. It's not like we all still live in London and we all know each other, and we all we don't necessarily see each other all the time, but I'm still in touch with them, and I would still count them. I would still count them as my friends, even though you, I might not see them. But, you yes. know, it, when I do bump into them and I have bumped into them on numerous occasions, you know, we are, you know, and I, I and like like you said before, I'm quite interested to sort of make some kind of an inventory of, yeah, I did that and I did that and sort of, <laughs> you know, get some kind of backup of it somewhere. So, yeah, I think I will start doing that and, nice like project. I said, invite them over and watch the gig together. I know, go just like, oh my God. Oh my God, I'm so scared. <laughs> I'm really scared. <laughs> yeah, it's like you'll all be singing, oh my God, is that us? Is that me? Yes, I know. It's like, anyway, it'll be good. So look, just, just what would, if you could, if you could have said something to an 18 year old self, your 18 year old self starting out in that murky and interesting world or creative world, what would, if there was something you could have told them, told yourself, what would it, what would you sort of thought oh I just whispered that in their ear they might have ignored me but I would have given it my best shot well I mean when you get a bit older you realize that being creative is actually the uh, the most kind of pleasant way to spend your time and um, you know what kind of keeps you fired up and keeps you kind of sharp and everything and and it's so enjoyable and I think I kind of and as everyone does and even in this day and age it's so difficult to focus because there's always the phone to look at or this thing or that thing and I I would say yeah keep your eye on the ball and keep sort of working at it because it, it's very easy to get disillusioned to um to say oh other people are so much better than you or you're not doing this or that not that great and to get really down on yourself and actually you realize as well that it's not that's not what it's about because obviously there's a whole world full of creative people most people do something creative and it's just to have that conviction is it conviction no what is it conviction is quite a good word to, to kind of say, you know, I'm just going to keep going because right now I still love writing songs and I still love the whole process of uh, creating that um, and to to say something. And um, so I'm still doing that, even though I'm not in a band or I'm not involved in anything musically uh, per se. But that is still really important to me, you know. Yes. And so I say to a young person, don't give up. Keep trying. Keep trying. Well, it's interesting because 
luckily, I'm, uh, I mentioned at the beginning, you know, David Bowie was my first love and that was such a lucky one. Could have been someone else. But, you know, so I stuck with him with Space yeah. Oddity. So, you know, then I got changes one and then all through his career. And then sort of obviously was curious and looked back at various other bits that I missed out. Um, but, you know, when I looked at his 60s stuff, what he did in the 60s for quite a long time, it's dreadful. It's really bad. And it's quite interesting because you're thinking you were making this music at the same time you had the Beatles, the Stones, the Kinks, the Doors, Jefferson Airplane, Jimi Hendrix. And you're making these very weird kind of who would have played this? Who would have bought it? And why do we, were you making it? And then obviously he persevered. And then, you know, it started to click. But he'd been five or six years. And it's kind of interesting that you, you, you probably were like, God, we got it quite quickly. Whereas someone like him would have just spent six, five years at least, six years. Making yeah, it. And I think it, that's a really, really interesting uh, example of that as well, where you know, there came a point in his career where he was like, I'm giving, you know, I'm, this isn't working and where is this going? And, <laughs> and they culminated in the Ziggy thing where it just went baff, you know, all click. And that's what it is. It's about that click. It's about all of a sudden going, oh yeah, this is working. Yes. But you know, you can spend a life um, also not experiencing that, but uh, I guess the, 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 the thing about it is that it, it's also about the journey and not about a destination. So sometimes it's not important what it is. It's just yeah. the fact that you've, you're doing it. Well, absolutely. You know, you know because your, yeah. your experience beyond that band doing those other bits. And even you said, you know, with your Adrian Sherwood and On You Sound and the rock stuff with Jolt as well. Yeah. It's like, yeah. well, it was kind of that project and then you you know it's that well that's that and then the next project and you know I suppose it's that thing of keeping going even though you think yeah you... and I did give up I did kind of give up I, at the end of that um I did give up and I and I you know and I I, I I was kind of done with it and I wish in a way I hadn't but you know and then I had then I had twins so that was everything was game over really but <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but now they are like teenagers so they're like do their own thing and I can go back to like music so I'm doing that quite a bit uh, at the moment so who knows yes who knows never say never watch this space <laughs> <laughs> well that's great but definitely yeah well you should definitely sort of work on the next album the next project and then that's sort it, out, yeah sort out the archives That'll be fun. Yeah, good idea. Good That's idea. Good idea. Well, Absolutely. look, thank you ever so much. And um, no, thank you. When I put, oh, there you go. Quick edit. Um, yes, massive thank you. That, oh, oh, by the way, that's the end of the interview. Um, and a massive thank you to Lini Metz for giving me the time for that. That was um, her life in music, especially the early or the formative years of Mambo Taxi. Anyway, this has been David Eastall, The C86 Show. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. And um, that's all good. And also, these have all been archived. And you can find those on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. Just do C86 Show. Anyway, have a great, great week. Stay safe.